Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 10. As we have uh, been periodically returning to the Psalms, in between some of our studies, as Chase mentioned this morning, it seems just in God's providence and timing that we have been studying several of the Psalms in various places and different capacities throughout the teaching ministry of this church as of late. That study has been most helpful, I believe, for all that have engaged in and with it. But for our study tonight, we will be returning to Psalm 10. We have uh, most recently considered Psalms 7, 8, and 9, and then the first half of Psalm 10, primarily verses 2 through 11. So in returning to it tonight, we will be giving primary consideration to verses 12 through 18, but for the sake of our understanding and edification, I want us to read all 18 verses together. So we will begin reading in verse 1. And then we will seek to understand it in its context and with its uh, given structure, giving primary consideration to verses 12 through 18. Before we read it together, let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, we do so as needy people. God, we come to your word because we need you to speak to us. We need you to feed us and to fill us. We need you to change and transform us to the image of Christ. We need you to bring an awareness of sin into our lives that we might put them to death and repent of them and be forgiven and restored. God, we need you to lead us in the paths of righteousness that we might not err by turning to the right or to the left. God, we need you to renew us in our minds that we might think with the mind of heaven and reason with the reasoning of heaven. God, we need you to help us to walk in righteousness and lead us in that path. And so, God, we pray tonight as we study Psalm 10 that you would do these things for us, that you would open your word to us and impart it, that you would plant it deep within our hearts where it may take root and grow and ultimately bear fruit. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear not because we deserve this, but because of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Psalm 10, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist here, I believe, again, as we'll make note in a moment, being David, he cries out with this question, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight, for all as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief, excuse me, and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his 
thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws himself, when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand, from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, he opens his commentary on the verses of Psalm 10 in this way. David in these verses discovers a very great affection to God and his favor. For in the time of trouble, that which he complains of most feelingly is God's withdrawing his gracious presence. Why standest thou afar off? As one unconcerned with the indignities done to thy name and the injuries done to the people. It is because we judge by outward appearance. We stand afar off from God by our unbelief. And then we complain that God stands afar off from us. It is because we judge, he says, by outward appearance in these difficulties and circumstances. We stand afar off from God by our unbelief. And then we complain that God stands afar off from us. What I love about so many of the Psalms, as they have been called... um, Time and again, the medicine cabinet of the soul. But one of the things that I love about the Psalms is that there is no emotion or condition or thought or circumstance of the human experience that is not addressed somewhere in them. So that whatever it is that you're dealing with, the psalmist or one of the psalmists knows He understands, and likely there is a psalm that in some way and to some degree addresses that circumstance or that thought or that misconception or that feeling and helps us and provides direction for us. One of the keys to understanding this psalm is found in its structure. And we have to understand the structure of the psalm if we are to understand the circumstance that it seeks to address When we turn to the very first verse and we see David here declaring, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself or your face literally in times of trouble? Why is it, God, that you've covered your eyes and you cannot see the evils that the wicked do to your people? Why do you allow them to prosper? Do you not see? Do you not know? Now, friends, I would advocate that we may get off track in thinking, as many who write about this psalm do, that God actually is far off from him at this point. It's wrong. Why would he turn in verse 12 to cry out to the God who is so far away and who does not see and does not know? Why would he want him to act on his behalf? And yet he does cry out to him. We see him also kind of asserting or declaring objective truths about God uh, that can bring correction to some errant or inappropriate thought. So later on in the psalm, we're going to hear the psalmist not only crying out to God, but asking God to do certain things based on who God is. In other words, he reminds himself about what he knows to be true about God. So what's really happening in verse 1 is what it seems to be. Maybe, maybe David, maybe the psalmist here, we don't know the occasion. We don't know the immediate circumstance or the difficulty of his life. We don't know what it is that was pressing down upon him. Evidently, the psalmist here, I believe it, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with those um, historians and theologians and commentators that see it to be David because of its closeness in relation to 9 here, to Psalm 9. But the psalmist, if it is David, he seems to identify himself here with the helpless, the broken, the fatherless, the oppressed, the one that is being stepped upon in order to lift up themselves, the wicked that are oppressing them. So the wicked seek prosperity, they seek gain, they seek ill-gotten gains, and they seek it by standing upon these weak ones. The psalmist seems to be identifying himself with these weak ones. And so the way the psalm structures in terms of our understanding is this. In verse 1, we have the psalmist posing a question based on kind of what he sees. The way way things may seem to be. Maybe he is being tempted to think in this way, but we're going to see at the end that he knows better and that he's going to bring self-correction. He's going to bring correction to his mind, to his heart by declaring the truths that he knows about God. But he poses this question based upon the circumstance in verse 1, and that is met and to be understood in light of the thesis statement, which is the kind of axiomatic or overarching truth claim that is the answer to the question found in verse 16. So this God who seems to be unaware, unaffected, uninterested, he doesn't know perhaps, he seems to be uninvolved. Look at what he says in verse 16 as he begins the last stanza. So verse 1 the predicament, the question, the perception, the way things may seem to be in his heart, in his circumstance. That's verse one. That's the first stanza. Then look at the beginning verse of the closing stanza. The Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord is 
the King forever and ever. This, this reality does not change. And it is under that truth, the sovereign rule and the kingship of God over all of his creation, that the psalmist here is encouraged and reminded and cries out to this king to rise up and to move his hand and to act on his behalf and the behalf of those that are oppressed. Now, just a quick question by way of seeking to identify with this psalm. Do you ever feel like God is not there? Can, can we say that? Can we be honest enough to say, you know, at times my heart is tempted to wonder, God, where are you? Why do you stand so far off and why do you cover your eyes? Before you say, no, I never wonder that, hang on. When we cannot understand what is going on with our job or when that job is lost or when at that job you don't get the raise that you deserve and your hard work is overlooked and passed by and given to someone else or when your boss persecutes you for your faith, do you ever look around and you wonder, God, where are you? When you pray and you pray and you pray some more and still the answer is no or maybe not yet, when the child or the spouse for whom you have prayed or the friend for whom you have prayed simply will not return. When victory over sin seems like such a long shot. When the hopes and dreams of a lifetime continue to go unrealized. When the physical pain and the struggle of your ailments will not subside. When there is no cure. When medicine does not work. When your very best efforts aren't good enough to pass the test, do you wonder, God, are you there? Do you see? Do you know? Are you listening? Are you aware? Looking beyond yourself, perhaps it's when you turn on the evening news or you walk upon the streets of your community and you consider as you look around at the evil and the upheaval of the world around you. Do you wonder if God is checked out or absent, the God of the deist who made everything and took a long vacation from it? When the righteous struggle, when the righteous are oppressed, and when the wicked look by all accounts to be prospering by standing on their necks, when the morality of our entertainment, of our schools, of our political leaders and of our friends is degrading at an immeasurably rapid pace. When Christians in our own context have become effectively unrecognizable from the world around them, do you wonder, God, are you there? See, we recounted as the psalmist does in verses 2 through 11, the situation that caused this mindset on this day, whatever it was. But he looked out and he saw the rampant wickedness and the seeming prosperity and victory of the wicked evildoers. And we considered certain aspects of these evildoers so that we could look at them as in a mirror to be sure that we are not like them. 
Because if nothing else is seen in these immediate, immediately preceding Psalms, seven and nine particularly, God hates all evildoers. Chase was talking about that this morning. That we must leave room in our understanding of who God is in his holiness and righteousness to see and understand that it is right and good and a necessary part of his justice that he hates evil. He's the holy God of all of creation. And so David looks out and he sees the oppression of the poor ones. Noted in this text is the helpless, the poor, the broken, the fatherless, and so on. They're all referring to the same group of people, the vulnerable and the needy, who are easy prey for the evildoers. And David looks out and he sees the circumstance and maybe in a moment of weakness begins to wonder, man, God, what are, what are you doing? Where are you? Well, like the psalmist, we must be remo- reminded tonight by the declared truth of Psalm 10, verse 16. He is the king. And he is the king forever and ever and ever and ever. He is the king over his enemies who refuse to acknowledge his rule. And he is the king over his subjects even when they fear he is lost. He is the king. He is the king forever and ever. From the rising of the sun to its setting and until it seeks to rise again, he is still the king. When we can see, when we cannot see and feel him and when we can, when we understand his ways and when we do not, when we are thankful for his sovereign rule and providence and when we are not, when we are seeking to honor him with our lives and when we are not, he is still the king. That means that there is nothing beyond the scope of his kingdom. That all of it, every detail of your life and mine, Every hair on every head that is upon this globe today and every head that has no hair, they are under the scepter of the king. He sees and he takes note and as this psalm tells us, he does not forget. So what you have then is the opening stanza is this kind of perception. The way things may seem if we go by circumstance. Then you have the overarching truth in 16, 17, and 18 that he is the king, that he is so forever, and that the nations perish from his land. And so on. And we'll, we'll come to the, the verses that are there. In between those two stanzas, we have the second stanza where he recounts the, the prosperity and the oppression of the, 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 the prosperity of the wicked and the way that they oppress the poor, the vulnerable. And then we have the response of the one who knows that he is the king. So remember the wicked, they say that there is no God. They say that his judgments are beyond the scope of their concern, that they are in the heavens, that they are beyond their sight. 
that God does not see and God does not know that he has forgotten, verse 11, that is not the mentality of the one who knows that God is still the king and he still sits on his throne. So that response comes to us in verse 12. The response of the psalmist, the response of King David, who knew and believed the truth of 1016, is to cry out to God and ask him to act and to, 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 to work on his behalf and to, to move. And so point number one, there's only going to be two. We're going to see number one, the God who is, is called upon to be the God who does. Okay, and I'll, I'll try to clarify that. And then point number two, the God who does is seen as the God who comforts through his doing. Okay, so that that's, may sound complicated. It's not. Number one, the God who is, is called upon to be the God who does. Look at what we find immediately in verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. So immediately what we see is the psalmist is crying out to God to take action. Now the idea here is that so much more than being called on to render a mere verdict. He is also being called through the the language of the hand being raised to be the one to mete out the judgments or the verdict. So it's not, God, I just need you to, to, to make a verdict about this case or this circumstance. It is, a, it is a specific cry that the God who renders the verdict would enact the verdict or would render the judgment. Oh God, lift up your hand. Now, the reason the psalmist asks God to do what he asks God to do is because he knows who God is. Now we need to be very we need to be very clear on this. If we do not understand who God is and what God does, then we will necessarily never be able to rightly ask him to act on our behalf. I mean it, it, listen, Christians who are asking God in their prayers to make them millionaires don't understand who God is. And because they've misunderstood who God is, they, they misunderstand what God does and why God does it. So the basis for the request the psalmist makes becomes the person, the identity, the nature of the God that he asks. Well, well who is he? The God who is, who is he? Well, look, verse 14, he is the God who does see, but you do see. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So the wicked man says God is far away and he will not remember and he will not hold accountable. And and though maybe I have wondered and struggled with those things, the psalmist says, but no, you, you are the king who sees and you note mischief and vexation. You don't see the mischief is interesting. It's kind of a, it's kind of a strange use here. Remember that back up um, a few verses earlier in verse seven, that under the tongue of the wicked are mischief and iniquity. Now you do see. Who does he see? 
He sees the mischief and vexation and iniquity of the evildoers who declare that he does not see. So he begins by reminding himself, God, you do see and you do take note. And this is all that it ultimately may be taken into your hands. That's the language of accountability. Notice the hand there. It is taken into his hand. He calls out for God in verse 12 to rise up and lift up his hand. The hand that he's taken these things into that you may take it into your hands. Notice he is also the God that helps the weary. Part of the plea in verse 12 is that he would forget not the afflicted. And though they may feel at times forgotten as if God is far off in their unbelief, notice he reminds himself, to you the helpless commits himself. Why? You have been the helper of the fatherless. So no matter what they may feel today, no matter what my circumstances may say to me today, you are the God who helps the fatherless. So he is the God who sees. He is the God who takes note. He is the God that does not forget either the offenses of his enemies or the tears of his children. You know, in the Psalms, it tells us that he bottles our tears. I should have jotted down that reference for you. That not one tear that falls from the eye of his beloved children hits the floor in vain. Not one. So he's the God who knows, he sees, he notes. He is the God who brings help and does not forget. And so here it is in verse 15 then, the closing line of this Stanza, this plea. This is who he is. So what is he called to do? Remember, he wants him to rise up and not just, not just render a verdict seated on his bench, so to speak, but to arise and lift his hand to actually mete out or render the judgment the verdict brings. Here it is in verse 15. The God who is called upon to be the one that does break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Listen, those are harsh words, and, and they say very plainly what they say. God, destroy your enemies. Now, why? It's twofold. Because he is the God who loves righteousness, hates unrighteousness and sees every offense and notes every iniquity that is transgressed against him. And though the transgressor, though we may feel like God has forgotten and he did not see and it's not that big of a deal, he knows, he notes, and there is coming a day of recompense. There is coming a day of vengeance. Break the arm of the evildoer. Break the arm of the wicked Call him to account until all of them are wiped away. There is none to be found. Call them before you and render your verdict and mete out the judgment. But it's not only because he loves righteousness and hates evil. It is also because he has not forgotten the oppressed ones. It's because in his love and mercy and grace, 
for his children, those who, unlike the wicked, who depend on themselves and go after the lusts of their heart and step on other people, seeking to gain whatever they can for themselves, but for those, his children, who look to the Lord, who selflessly sacrifice and depend upon him, who seek to find joy and satisfaction in whatever God provides. He remembers them. He hears their cry. Notice down in verse 17, and and, and we're going to come back to this. But down in verse 17, you can see the similarity. Let me find it. Back in verse 3, the wicked boasts of his desires, the desires of his soul thinking that God does not hear and see. So get the irony. But the one who is broken and afflicted, verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. So the wicked boast in their sin and arrogance of their lustful desires and seeking to satisfy all of those things in their life, thinking that God cannot hear and does not hear and that his judgments are too far in the heavens to even be concerned about. And yet the one who is broken in his dependence upon the Lord, his affliction and his cries from his estate, they are not missed by the God who loves him. It's pretty fascinating. So he's the God who hears and he knows and ultimately is called upon because of who he is to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer and to call them to account. Now, it's not just because he hates wickedness, but because he loves his children. How does the breaking the arm of the wicked and calling them before him until he finds none, it is because it is to the vindication of the oppressed in their righteous dependence upon him and it is to their deliverance. So as they steadfastly depend upon God in the face of mocking and reviling and oppression, God vindicates them on that day, whenever that day may be. His judgments are often delayed. Sometimes they may be delayed until the very end. But whenever that day of recompense comes, they are vindicated as having depended upon and trusted in the king who was there even when he seemed to not be. So they're vindicated and they are delivered from those who seek to press them down and continue to oppress them. So much to this uh, point are these verses structured in this way that he bases, that is the psalmist David here, bases his request in asking God to work in who God is that James Montgomery Boyce put it this way. When David does intercede for the helpless, He does so with great confidence because of his knowledge of what God is like and how he operates. So so David comes and he cries out to God for himself and for those who are broken and afflicted. And he does so knowing that God will answer, that he will vindicate and that he will deliver them, not because of them, not because of his request, but because he knows who God is and how God operates. So he may come and ask God to do what God has promised to do. Have you ever ever thought about that? 
When you, know, when, when you begin to really see God in all of his beauty and glory and you begin to see and understand something of his purposes in redemption and in redemptive history working in your life, even in those most difficult times, you come to the Lord and you ask him for patience. He's going to give it to you. What broken, humble servant of the Lord who comes and cries out to him for wisdom, for patience, for joy, for satisfaction, for long-suffering, for the fruit of the Spirit, for the presence of the Spirit, for these things that God has promised to us and longs for us. Which one of them has He turned away empty-handed? Zero. Zero. So that the, the writer of Hebrews says, we may come with boldness then through our great high priest, King Jesus, into and before the throne of God, with confidence, same kind of idea and language here, with confidence that we may receive grace and help in our time of need. We ask not, it says, and we have not because we do not ask in accord with what God wants for us. I saw a preacher on TV literally pray over his congregation of about 40,000 there that day, I believe that God would bless them with Lexuses. What a ridiculous and empty and petty thing to ask of the Almighty. So, the psalmist, he reminds himself of the king, who he is, and what he does, and how he operates, and then he bases his request therein. And so we see him crying out to the God of righteous judgment and holiness to break the arm of the wicked in order that they would be stamped out and his people delivered and vindicated. Now, point two, and very quickly, the last thing that we see, the God who does, that is the one who comes and breaks the arm of the wicked and delivers his people on that day, is seen as the God who comforts through, through his doing. Turn to the last stanza, verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. And then just a statement of fact, the nations perish from his land. He remains, they move on. I think that's in juxtaposition to verse 6, by the way. These wicked ones, what did they say? I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, from generation to generation, I shall not meet adversity. Because God has forgotten. What does he say? He is the king, and the nations of the earth perish from his land. Yet he remains. But then look at verse 17. The psalmist now taking great solace and comfort in the person of God and in the work of God as he promised. He doesn't know when the Lord will deliver. He doesn't know when the Lord will vindicate, but he knows that he will. O Lord, you have heard or you hear the desire of the afflicted. But then then look, the, 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 the declaration of solace and peace and comfort. You will strengthen their heart. Until this deliverance comes, because I know who you are 
And because I know what you intend to do, even if you delay in doing it, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth, that is, that is as opposed to men who live under the Lord, may strike terror in them no more. You see that. So that the God who does, based upon who he is, becomes the comfort and the solace for the afflicted and struggling people indefinitely for time to come. And so David is here declaring himself with these poor ones, with these broken ones, these fatherless, these weary ones. You will listen. You you will incline your ear. And when you hear, you will do justice to vindicate and deliver the fatherless and the oppressed, you will strengthen our hearts. And so in his doing, there is great comfort for those who trust him. I wonder tonight, do we trust the Lord like this, like, like, like David did? And in, and in moments of weakness and sin and, 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 and circumstances of difficulty, the presence of evil in the world, the prosperity of the wicked around us, the difficulties that we faith, I mean that we face personally, interpersonally, at our works, with our health, with our health care, whatever the case may be, when we are prone to think, man, God is forgotten, God is not watching, God does not care, God is far off, as Matthew Henry said, when we in our unbelief have moved away from him and gripe about his being far from us, can we remind ourselves, like the psalmist does, that he is the king? And he sees, he takes note, and he will, he will bring about judgment. May he strengthen our hearts and incline his ear to listen to our cries until the day of justice comes. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, may we depend upon you more and more each day. God, we pray that you would be our joy And you would be our peace and you would be our satisfaction. That when the circumstances and the difficulties of life seem to press hard upon us, God, may we not question what we know to be true. In our sin, may we not begin to think that you have forgotten or forsaken. But may we be reminded that you are the King, the Father to the fatherless the one who helps the helpless, the one who listens to the cries of the afflicted, the one who strengthens the hearts of the broken. God, may we know that you have promised to bring an end to sin one day, that you will be king over your enemies, that there is coming a day, there is coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, until that day comes, may we find grace and help from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.